The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. My name is Shobana Xavier. In each new episode, we interview the author of a new book in Islamic Studies. Today we have Farine Pravaz. Politicizing Islam, the Islamic Revival in France and India by Farin Pravaz is a rich ethnographic analysis of the Islamic revival movements in France and India. In her study, Parvez maps the complex ways in which Muslims, especially women, engage in religious and political activism in secular states where they are minorities. Her study challenges many notions of secularity and political Islam, particularly as it intersects with complex class identities, such as those who are marginalized socioeconomically, both in India and France. Moving through everyday spaces such as schools, Islamic and secular conferences, mosques and cafes, Parvez's studies attunes us to the intricate realities of women's political and religious activism. The study is of great importance to scholars invested in minority and Muslim politics in India and France, as well as those working on secularism, Muslim women, and political Islam. While Pervaz's rich ethnographic methodologies and reflections would be of great value for those working in anthropology. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Farin Pervaz. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. On our episodes, we usually like to begin by asking the authors to reflect on their intellectual journey. Um, And I wonder if you could share something of how, uh, what led to the writing of this particular monograph. Yeah, sure. Um, So this is my first book, um, and it developed out of my dissertation in sociology at UC Berkeley, um, where, you know, these types of very ambitious um, kind of multi-site ethnographies were not uncommon. Um, but before that, I had uh, I had worked in the field of urban welfare for New York City government, um, and my interests were in gender, um, urban welfare, and international development. Um, I worked just a couple of blocks from the World Trade Center, um, but I eventually became a little disillusioned working for government, and so I decided to go back to go back to school. Um, and so my graduate cohort was the cohort that began in two thousand one. Um, and it was just a couple of weeks into classes that, you know, September 11th happened um, and everything changed for my cohort and, and, and the world kind of changed overnight. Um, I think it was, you know, just a few weeks later, the war on terror had, had started um, and then the U.S. invaded Afghanistan and, you know, these images of women in burqas that were being used to, to justify the war. Um, 
and just this growing fear of, of Islam and Muslims all over the world, even even in secular countries. Um, and so, you know, even though anti-Muslim racism had, has a long history in the U.S., but um, but this was something you know very different that I hadn't experienced before. Um, and I think I, I felt a kind of ethical obligation um, to work on these issues, having been raised in a Muslim family and being a student of politics. Um, but I also had a, a desire to understand, you know, what is this thing called political Islam? And eventually that, that opened up into broader questions for me about what do we mean by, by politics? Um, and what are these various Islamic movements, you know, trying to achieve what is their potential for, um, for a more kind of transformative vision? Um, but I decided to focus on secular states and, and the question of Muslim minorities because even in these cases, Muslims were really um, under surveillance and becoming very heavy, heavily politicized. Um, and then there were these, you know, parallel sets of questions about multicultural societies and how how can Muslims exercise citizenship and how can they live harmoniously with non-Muslims. Um, and so this is where it all began in graduate school, and, and that kept me busy for um, for the next decade. Yeah, um, I was really amazed with kind of the deep ethnographic work that you have done. And in fact, um, especially reading your appendix, the vulnerability of yourself as a researcher in these multiple sites. Um, So I wonder if you could share with us a little bit more about your experiences as an ethnographer doing what you framed as global ethnography and the challenges, particularly under um, states, you know, and communities that were under surveillance and also as a woman who's navigating these two different localities. So, so this was an incredibly difficult project. (laughs) I'm always a little nervous, you know, when when students come to me now wanting to do something similar. Um, So it's one of those things I'm I'm happy to say I'll I'll probably never do it again, you know. (laughs) But I'd say the methodological challenges I faced, you know, were fundamentally like ethical challenges, um, ethical questions and and, and yeah, in the book's appendix, I kind of narrate these in detail. And I kind of try to, you know, subject my own position as a researcher to the same analysis in the book in a way where, you know, I kind of interrogate what's going on, a lot about gender, class, and nationality. Um, but I worried about my own ethnographic access, you know, can I even do this project given all the, the barriers? Um, but also how my presence as a researcher was affecting other people. Um, so in in Hyderabad, um, in India, I, I could kind of move about very freely, um, and I had you know an enormous privilege I could draw on based on class and, and nationality um, to gain access to poor communities. To to put it very bluntly, um, but some of the people I spent time with were under police surveillance, you know, I thought briefly in the book about how I was um, detained by the police one afternoon, um, and I was really shocked, you know, that they knew who I was and where I had been, because um, I had no idea, you know, <laughs> but I was most worried because they, you know, they weren't interested in me, but they were interested in, um, in these activists that I had spent time with, um, and so I was worried about protecting them. I mean, the situation turned out fine, but but it was scary. But aside from that, in India, you know, I faced um, a lot of problems with kind of getting asked for money. Um, all, all 
in almost every single day. Um, and that, you know, that, that can happen um, in field work, but it really forced me to think about the nature of the relationships that we build as ethnographers because we're, we're entirely dependent on these relationships. Um, you know, and what does it mean to be close to someone when the gap in, in wealth and education is so immense? Um, and that remained entirely you know, un unresolved for me. Um, in France, the security situation was, was actually much worse, and it made everything much, much harder. Um, I didn't understand what was going on at first. I was so naive. Um, you know, I was yelled at by someone uh, in a cafe in one of the housing projects um, in the working class neighborhood. And it just it took me a while. I was... I, before I kind of slowly began to grasp the, the fear um, of, of surveillance. You know, my first trip was in 2006, which wasn't not long after um, these major urban riots, you know, that had taken place in 2005. <clears throat> so the challenge um, was getting anyone to trust me in, in these neighborhoods. But the funny thing is that because I'm also South Asian, <laughs> everyone had this fascination with India in Bollywood. Um, <laughs> And that ended up opening the door for me, which, you know, I thought was very strange, but you know, I'll, I'll take what I can get. So. Right, right. And in many ways, kind of the movements that you describe and the way in which maybe what would be assumed of India and what would be assumed of France are really being subverted in your own kind of ethnographic encounter. And it's so it's kind of one of the amazing things um, reading the book is really just kind of the uh, descriptive um, kind of um, scenes that you outline for the reader, right, of your relationships and your encounter. But at the same time, reading your appendix, you realize how much of your own humanity and how vulnerable you were as a researcher at the same time, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, definitely as a woman, as a woman, I mean, you know, fortunately, these are special challenges you know, that we women have, have to confront. Um, I mean, I kind of knew that my observations among men would, would be limited. Um, but I didn't always know what to expect, and I really had to kind of navigate that on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but I struggled the most in my vulnerability, but also just feeling so much responsibility for um, for people in the field. Um, I struggled the most with wearing the hijab. Um, and, you know, I made the choice to kind of dress as, as, as the women did. Um, so I wore the hijab, you know, in Hyderabad, I wore the hijab. Um, which wasn't really a problem at all. Um, but the biggest issue I faced was dealing with big stigma in, in France. Um, and I felt guilty because I was so inconsistent about it. And that really tormented me, you know, and it was fine to be inconsistent like that in India. Um, but in France, you know, for them, it's, it's a big deal. You know, it's a big deal to deal with that kind of stigma. They worked hard to deal with it and to develop their faith. Um, so yeah, so I felt bad about being able to take it on and off, um, and be kind of nonchalant about it, but I found it too difficult to, um, to, to wear it all the time. I had a really hard time in the Metro. I just kind of hated being stared at, um, like that. 
Um, I want to come back to the hijab conversation, but I want to first maybe lay out why you picked these particular sites in India and France. What was the thinking behind it? Um, and what are the themes that you're trying to address? Particularly, I think the interventions you're trying to make in terms of discussion about class and politicization or anti-politicization to some extent. You know, there are a lot of different comparisons that we constructed, um, possibly on any topic, but, but you know, on this topic, um, and there have been in recent years, you know, Germany and Turkey, or the UK and France. Um, of course, as an ethnographer, you kind of have to think about your own skills and, and practical issues around accessing different field sites. Um, and both of these sites felt accessible to me. Um, but I wanted to look at cases where, you know, Muslims were a significant minority, um, and they are the, the largest religious minority um, in both India and France, where, you know, questions around Islam and, and Muslim minorities are a major um, are, are parts of the major public debates, um, but also where Muslims are predominantly in lower class positions because class has always been a major category and lens in, in my work. Um, so there has been an Islamic revival in both India and France, and, and they're similar in some ways, um, but they have nearly opposite models of, of secularism. And so I wanted to see, you know, how the state approaches um, religion and religious minorities would impact the type of political movements that, that we might see. Um, so that was kind of the main variation, if you will. Um, I had different mentors and, and professors in various contexts, even to this day, you know, who, um, who are really skeptical about a France-India comparison. Um, so it was really a challenge to convince people. But in in midst of it all, what are the things that the um, the case studies do in terms of a transnational comparison is kind of the ways in which there are similarities, but the ones you weren't expecting, and there are differences in terms of ones you weren't expecting, right? Um, and one of the things that you do in both contexts is really focus on class and why was class so important in terms of, you know, in the particular case studies, um, in terms of the field that you're engaging with? Because it, it does, in your introduction, you do talk about how that is um, something that has been neglected in studies. Um, and so what does looking at class do in terms of providing us insights that other studies perhaps have not done? Yeah, um, it, was, it was very important um, to me initially, and then it became even more important once I started work. And so, you know, I don't want to say that class is entirely over overlooked. I mean, there are important um, exceptions to that in the literature. <clears throat> in fact, um, one of the questions in the earlier literature um, that I think really paralyzed the literature was this question of, you know, is political Islam really about material concerns or is it about religion? You know, it was, it was kind of set up as, as this binary. Um, I think a lot of that work was not based on ethnographic study, and, and the literature has has really kind of moved on from that question. Um, but to the extent that it is um, overlooked or not taken as seriously, I think it's because Muslims are always viewed primarily through the lens of, of religion, religiosity, um, and then also through the lens of gender. And, and so I think the importance of class becomes becomes marginalized. Um, I've always gotten a lot of resistance to, to this argument around, around class. Um, but to me, it was so stark in the, in the field work. Um, it's just impossible to, to deny. Um, the way people approached their religious practice, the way they thought about 
politics and the and the opportunities that were available to them. All of this differed by by class location. Um, so then my analysis became around these four different movements. You know, so two of them taking place among the middle classes, and then two of them taking place among the poor and subaltern. They were, and they were quite distinct. Um, but I think it's important because much of what we think of as a religious struggle or an ideological struggle among Muslims is really also a cultural class struggle. Um, so I was you know, really struck by how much um, Salafi forms of Islam, for example, were most prevalent among the poor and the subaltern, the same communities that have really withdrawn from the state. Um, so when people talk about the need to reform Islam, to make it more liberal, or to fight the tide of so-called fundamentalism, they're also talking about societies of people who are dispossessed and marginalized um, and maybe living below the poverty line. And so I think it's problematic to ignore that reality you know, and fixate instead on the way people dress or crave when there's, you know, this other stuff that's happening that, that's related to class. And I think in the midst of all this is in both both contexts of India and France is this broader issue of secularism, right? And I think that's where your case studies are very, very important in how these movements, be it women, be it educational program, be it activist, um, are responding to some kind of um, forms of secularism at the, the state level um, and their place within it, right? Um, so how does... Com- the case studies that you're introducing in this book um, really kind of uh, challenge what we think about secularism, particularly in the context of India and particularly in the context of France. Yeah, so um, this is a big question and there's a really kind of, you know, I think exciting um, body of literature that's been developed over the last several years around this question. Um, so I kind of, you know, I have a historical chapter in the book where I where I go into it, uh, and I kind of, you know, describe secularism in both countries as having been, you know, kind of paradoxical or led to um, contradictory effects. Um, so first of all, you know, secularism as a form of, of state management is, is built on this idea that there are religious groups, you know, that that require protection and equal treatment. Um, but what happened in, in politically constructing these groups as administrative categories um, is that they become homogenized. So in both India and France, you know, Muslims were, and they are, you know, an enormously diverse heterogeneous population you know, around region, language, um, and class, but, but they came to be constructed as this homogenous minority category. Um, and so important differences among them actually get erased. Um, so that's, that's one issue, but, but kind of just putting that aside for a minute, if we start with the kind of basic definition of, of secularism as freedom of religious practice and protection of minorities, um, but also the expectation that, that citizens can or should keep their religion private um, while the state of course is neutral, I think these two cases show how all of these promises, if you will, get get broken. Um, So in France, you know, people of Muslim origin were never really treated uh, equally. They never really got the 
benefits of the secular promise. You know, um, France had, you know, never applied secularism, secular law to Algeria. Um, it explicitly categorized the colonial population as Muslim, you know, as, as Muslims. Um, and even after colonial independence, uh, it created like separate welfare services for Muslims and kind of um, allowed um, ethnic segregation in the housing projects, which you know, continues to this day. Um, so they were always marked as, as different, whether it was as immigrants or, or as Muslims. Um, so that's one thing. <laughs> and then in terms of freedom of religion, um, you know, it's been very hard for Muslim communities to get permission to build mosques or Islamic schools. Um, it's been hard for women who wear the headscarf to practice freely because, you know, um, the state banned it in public schools in 2004. There's a lot of discrimination in the workplace. Um, and so one of the things that I argue in the book is that middle-class Muslims have had to participate in, in recognition politics on what you know, we sometimes dismissively call identity politics. Um, and in this way, they've had to politicize their religious identity just to secure basic rights. So in, in a way, it's not really an option for them to keep their religion private because the state has been so obstructive and, and made such a political issue of Islam. Um, so this is a contradiction of, of secularism in the case of France. Um, and just briefly on the Indian case, you know, religious minorities got very robust um, religious freedoms and support from the state. So it's a very different um, context. But but what happened there, um, based on my kind of reading of the history, is that their issues became disconnected from issues of caste and class. And this is when you know half of Muslims actually have the same occupations as lower caste Hindus. Um, but the argument was sort of, well, you have religious freedom, you know, what more do you want? <laughs> um, so in a way, they became kind of locked into their religious identity and then have had to use that identity to struggle for, for economic rights. So, so in other words, you know, religious identity becomes even more important in, in political and politicized under secularism, which is a paradox. You know, it becomes impossible for it to actually remain that makes sense. Yeah. And this is where I noticed that in the Indian context, the multiple kind of identity politics that were playing out were far more complicated than was in the French context where caste identity, you know, Dalits, um, this was far more prominent. And so the othering that often happened between some of your interlocutors and saying how they were not Hindus in this way or not um, the way in which the Hindus did certain things, right? Um, that was quite unique versus kind of the... Uh, French context where you don't have that, right? Um, and so caste remains this issue that keeps coming up again in India, even for, you know, Muslim communities in the way they perhaps may be engaging or building alliances with other communities, right? Yeah, I think that the, the major um, Muslim political party in, in Hyderabad has been trying, especially in recent years, to build coalitions um, with other communities and you know, 
we'll see what happens. Right. right. Um, so one of the things that I was really fascinated by uh, women's involvement, um, and especially the ways in which they kind of navigated the public and private lines um, and how they were very dominant in both the, uh, the French context and the Indian context. Um, so can you share with us maybe some um, experiences from the field or stories that you do bring up in the, in the book, um, particularly a woman and, and their roles as educators, their roles as activists and what they did? Yeah, um, so they, you know, in general, I would say women are very much the forefront of, um, of Islamic revival. Um, and I spent the majority of my fieldwork time um, among women. Um, so, you know, I first want to be clear that it, that it was mostly practicing uh, Muslim women and women who do wear the headscarf or the niqab. And that's really only one subset of, of Muslim women. It's kind of an elementary point, but it's, it's important to make. Um, but even in these cases, you know, I saw this just tremendous diversity, um, of ways of being religious, um, and how much faith is, is really an individual matter for them. Um, so in France, especially the, the women at this Salafi mosque that I attended talked a lot about struggling with doubt and working hard to strengthen your faith. Um, you know, that ultimately it's a really private relationship. God, um, and that was kind of a core teaching was was respect for, for privacy. We're going to see that you know in, in this context of such um, state surveillance. Um, but yeah, this issue of kind of practicing Islam publicly versus privately was um, was an important theme. Um, I mean, basically in India, you know, because women for the most part can wear the niqab. Um, they feel safer and more comfortable going out into public space. Um, and so there's really a kind of growing support for their going to school, going to college, um, becoming self-employed. And it's actually a pretty big deal. It's like a, a big social transformation that's taking place. Um, and it's kind of an exciting time. Um, and I argue in the book, you know, that they're becoming part of political communities and learning skills together, um, using Islamic law to secure some of their rights, like right to divorce. Um, so it's a much more hopeful case. Uh, you know, and there are several stories I heard about women that actually were able to do so much better in their lives using Sharia courts, you know, and instead of civil courts. Um, and they do that kind of working together in their communities. Um, but unfortunately, the French case uh, is really different in terms of the potential for for Salafi women, like working class Salafi women in particular, to, to become civically engaged. Um, you know, and I show how they've had to retreat into private life or what I call um, anti-politics in the book. Basically, you know, there's so much hostility to their religious practice. Um, and I have witnessed numerous times um, women kind getting harassed in public space um, because of, you know, the way they dress. So some have, you know, been withdrawing from schools or generally not able to work or find it really difficult to find work. Um, and so ironically, they're developing themselves precisely through religious study. You know, it's become a really important avenue for them to be able to gather in the mosques and do, you know, Quranic exegesis um, and talk about all sorts of, you know, philosophical issues. Um, so it, it's been an important alternative for them when they're actually so cut off 
um, from the public sphere and other forms of civil society. So, so it contrasts a lot to the Indian case. And this is where um, the the spectrum in which the um, kind of the veiling practices, the, be it the niqab, meet the burqa, the politicization of it was so fascinating to kind of see. Because even in the Indian context, some who perhaps were trying to promote progressive platforms, if you want to call it, were adamant that women not veil in public, right, versus women saying that they wanted to. Whereas in the French context, women felt that that was an expression of their Islamic piety, considering they're in a state that perhaps is, um, you know, at times violently um, in opposition to their mere presence, right? Um, and they're kind of entry into citizenship. Um, and so the veil does become immensely politicized in both contexts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, I was mostly spending time within Muslim communities. And so I, I was kind of privy to this debate over years. Um, and it was, it was really striking to me, the kind of judgment that's taking place within Muslim communities. And, and one of the things that I, um, working on a paper right now trying to show is, you know, this issue over kind of liberalizing Islam, reforming Islam, um, is this kind of complex, um, process around that's taking place across class and involves a lot of kind of cultural judgment, you know, um, uh, across class. Um, so basically it was the middle class and elite Muslims who really, um, felt very troubled by, um, by the niqab and to some extent, just, just the jalbab as well, you know, so they were kind of okay with, you know, wearing the hijab, although there were, um, kind of elite Muslims, especially in the Indian case that even, even the hijab they thought was, um, was, was too much, you know? Um, and so they felt strongly that something needed to change. Um, and those among the poor and subaltern kind of resisted this, this judgment. But the difference I think is that in, in Hyderabad, there's just much more of a kind of vibrant debate taking place. Um, which also, you know, within the tradition about what is proper Islamic practice or um, what kinds of changes need to take place, I suppose, um, or how to kind of, you know, create gender justice within, you know, the bounds of, of Islam. Uh, and I argue basically that where you have such um, strong religious freedom as you do in the Indian case, more likely to have that kind of debate. And ultimately, that's good for social movements, for feminist movements. Um, and I did not see that kind of debate in the case of France because um, the classes were so divided. Um, and part of that ultimately has to do with, you know, the state surveillance and the type of secularism um, that, that France carries out. And another uh, theme that was common as well in both the Indian context and the French context um, was education. I kept seeing that it pop out, um, especially this kind of debate um, as you're talking about different forms of secularism that were unfolding in each context, the ways in which Islamic education, particularly religious education was important, or the ways in which kind of non-Islamic education going against the madrasa system was important. Um, and this is also very important for women as teachers, as students, um, and the access it provided for them. Um, so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what you've noticed um, about education, schooling, um, and women. So, so again, the Indian case was, was really, there's a lot going on. Um, I, 
some ways I feel like I was just starting to, to scratch the surface of it, you know? Um, so in, in Hyderabad, um, I think I don't kind of, you know, hold me to this, but I think it has one of the highest numbers of, um, of girls madrasas. Um, and they're kind of, you know, trying to start like women's Islamic colleges and things like that. Um, and, you know, and there is this big debate about to what extent should madrasas, you know, incorporate secular education and things like that. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, it's an important kind of avenue for, um, for communities of, of people that have felt very um, kind of marginalized or disconnected from the government schools and they can't afford the schools or they feel like ultimately it's um, kind of upholding, you know, curric- curriculums that, um, kind of promotes, you know, um, kind of, you know, Hindu nationalism, basically. And they, they feel quite um, estranged from the schools and the quality of a lot of the government schools, especially in, in Muslim neighborhoods, is really poor. Um, so for both boys and girls, madrasa education has become really important. Um, and I argue that it also, um, for, for very poor communities, it, it also kind of creates a type of honor, like a symbolic um, honor. You know, they they get kind of respect within the community for having um, this Islamic knowledge. Um, and I think there's something similar happening in, in France where there is some sort of honor attached to it. And it's a really important space for women, especially um, to kind of develop themselves. But there again, they're, they're, um, they're much more withdrawn from, from public schools, actually, I think in case of, just because of the legislation um, that, that affects. Uh, and I want to kind of maybe step back from all the wonderful details of the, the case studies and think largely in terms of what's happening in India and also what's happening in, in France, um, both in terms of nationalistic movements, maybe, you know, the BJP in India, the rise of certain forms of Hindu nationalism, um, and also in the pre uh, the French context of just kind of the movement of secularism of laicite of, you know, blatant Islamophobia that you kind of documented. And what does your case study really tell us about um, these broader contexts and the implications um, for French, uh, for France and for, for India and what's happening now? Right. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, since I was doing the research, you know, the, the situation in both places is really just rapidly deteriorated. Um, in a way that it's in some ways was predictable, but also, you know, um, I don't know, you're never quite prepared, you know. Um, so there were, you know, major terrorist attacks in Mumbai, and Paris, um, Hindu nationalists came to power in India um, in 2014, and I, I was just in complete shock and denial um, when that happened, um, those elections. Uh, you know, there was a two-year state of emergency in, in France. I think it was just recently lifted. Um, but yeah, I mean, hate crimes against Muslims have gone up, um, especially against women in the case of France, which, which is very disturbing. Um, and, you know, and there have been horrible cases of, of violence in India um, recently around the issue of eating beef. Um, but I think the, the book shows kind of how this has been building up, um, how Muslim communities have reacted over the years, um, why it's been important for them to try to resist state control over Islam, um, why they've withdrawn into their own communities and, and you know, private spheres. 
um, and how important it is for them to figure out how to practice some some autonomy in this context and kind of find meaning in their practice. And um, one of the implications in my book is that it's actually dangerous to to cut people off, you know, maybe especially young people from avenues where they can find spiritual and existential meaning. Um, you know, so during the state of emergency in France, there's, there's been this ongoing conversation about shutting down um, Salafi mosques, um, and I, I believe a few of them have been shut down. Um, you know, and I think that going after these mosques is, is not the best strategy to prevent terrorism. Um, others in France have been arguing this too. So, uh, yeah, so the, <laughs> these issues are not going away anytime soon. <laughs> Um, before we conclude our conversation, we often like to hear what um, authors are working on now. Um, are there any projects that you're starting on or what can we expect in the future from yourself? Yeah, so um, so I have two projects um, that are kind of beginning. Um, both, are, both are qualitative, um, but won't really be based on long-term ethnography like this one, although <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, so one is very squarely on, on religion. Um, and also kind of medical anthropology, which is a really you know, entirely new field for me. Um, and the second one really goes away from religion and more to, to political economy. Um, so the first one is in Morocco, um, which is a new field site for me, and it's, it's on the topic of Islamic healing um, and, and jinn possession. Um, so there's been kind of an increasing demand for, for religious healing. Um, but it's not always clear what that is or what, ex what exactly constitutes religious healing. Um, and some of the practitioners, um, you know, who, um, who offer these services are under state surveillance. Um, and Morocco has kind of you know, had its own um, war on terror. So it sort of comes out of the book in that it's looking at debates on the ground, um, you know, uh, contentious debates about what constitutes proper religious practice. Um, you know, is something kind of crossing the line into into shirk, you know, into um, kind of polytheistic practices, or or is it truly you know, um, religiously legitimated? Um, and there's also a big gender component in this project because many of the the patients who come to these um, practitioners who are possessed, you know, are are women. Um, and so, and there's you know, there's a big literature on this, and I'm just kind of starting to. Um, to get into it, but I did start some private research um, in the city of Fez a couple of years ago. Um, and so the second project is in India again, um, in Hyderabad, and it's looking at the interaction um, between the marriage practice of dowry, um, predatory lending in, in poor communities, and then kind of temporary migration to Gulf countries. So those are, you know, three big issues, but they're all kind of, connected in some way. And so I'm planning to do household interviews um, to see how poor families are getting caught up in, in this kind of vicious circle of uh, exploitative practices. So that will, that will take me back to India again. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. And I do wish you um, safety on your travels to your research sites. Um, and uh, we look forward to having a conversation with you again in the future about your future projects. Thank you. Great. Thanks a lot.